Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise for your great faithfulness. We pray, Lord, now that you would open your word, that we might learn how to be faithful to you, that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us exactly what we need this day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There are certain promises in Scripture that we tend to gravitate toward, statements that encourage us in our daily lives. While John's first epistle contains many stark contrasts that can be challenging for us, it also contains many of these types of passages that Christians love. We've already encountered a few of them in our series. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Or if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only but the sins of the whole world. Those are just a couple verses that are near and dear to my heart that I personally love. One that many love is actually from our reading today, chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That's a great verse, isn't it? That's a promise we want to grab hold of. Well, today we're going to dive a little deeper into this promise. We're going to look at who the children of God are and how to become one. As we look at those things, we'll see what the implications of being a child of God are, how it gives us hope for the future and guidance in the present. So let's dive right in. As always, you can follow with your study book if you have that or with the insert from your bulletin. Let's start with the first part. Who are the children of God? Now, some of us might think that that's a silly question. All people are children of God. After all, all people were made by God. He made all of us. I completely understand that conclusion. I see how one would get there. It's just not correct. Not all people are children of God. Believing that all people are children of God comes from a failing to distinguish between being made in the image of God and being a child of God. Scripture is clear that all people are made in the image of God. Because of that, when we look at anyone else, we should see someone who is made in the image of God. And because of that, regardless of gender or race or sexuality or any of the other human divisions that we create, they are to be treated with love, dignity, and respect. But that doesn't necessarily make them a child of God. That is the unique claim of the Christian. How do we see that? Well, right before the verse that we love so much comes chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he, he meaning God, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That last phrase is crucial for our understanding of this difference. It's not enough to simply be made in the image of God. To be a child of God, we must be born of him. 
Consider Jesus' teaching in John chapter 3. In that chapter, we have a good man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus by night. And Jesus teaches him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus presses the point a little bit, asking how that is even possible. And Jesus responds by saying something very similar. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The point is that to be a child of God, Jesus teaches us, we must be reborn. We must be born again, to use a phrase that many of us have heard many times, I'm sure. That brings us to the first implication that we're going to look at today. It's that being a child of God is meant to impact how we live, and we can see whether or not we are a child of God by the practices of our lives. See, the underlying assumption of needing rebirth is that something has gone wrong for us apart from God. We need a new start. Paul makes this explicit in Ephesians 2. He writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's a fairly grim assessment of our condition apart from God, but Paul makes it clear that that is what our spiritual state is apart from Jesus, without rebirth. And John makes much the same argument through verses 4 through 10. I've said at least twice before, and you will hear me say it many, many more times, when you are looking at Scripture and a word is being repeated, pay attention to it. There's a reason it's being repeated. And the repeated words to notice here are sin or sinning and righteousness. A contrast is being made between them. John is contrasting the child of God who lives a life of righteousness and those apart from God who live lives of sin. And John doesn't pull any punches here. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. In other words, we know if we have been reborn by who it is we resemble. Many people, when they meet me and my son, comment on how we look just a little bit alike. If you met my father, you could make the same comment about the two of us. It's what happens with families, isn't it? You look like one another. That is how it is supposed to be with the children of God. Our lives are meant to reflect him. We bear the family resemblance when we live lives of righteousness and holiness, but without being reborn into the family of God, that will not happen. 
Verse 9 tells us that it is impossible for the child of God to continue in a life of sin because we have the Spirit in us who convicts us of sin and points us to Jesus. We've been reborn of the Spirit. To continue in a life of sin is to show that we have not submitted to Christ, that we are not a child of God, that we are still dead in our trespasses. Now, this is the point when people tend to get a little uncomfortable. Does it mean everything that I've just said, that those who are not Christian can never do good things? Or does it mean that if you're a Christian, that you will never commit another sin? The answer to both of those questions is no. Being made in the image of God means that we still bear his signature, so to speak. And so whether we are Christian or not, we can still do good things. And there is countless amounts of verifiable evidence that Christians still sin all the time. So what is John talking about here? Again, pay attention to repeated words. Repeated words matter. And our passage constantly uses the word practices. Whoever makes a practice of sinning. Whoever practices righteousness. John is talking about patterns of behavior. Not necessarily specific moments, but an overall lifestyle, we could say. To practice sin is to have ongoing, unrepentant, willful sin in one's life. And that is the evidence of not being reborn. When we are reborn of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, our heart condition is changed so that it's not bent towards sin, but bent towards righteousness. That doesn't mean we're always going to choose what is right, but that when we do sin, we can recognize it as a sin, call it what it is, and repent of it. It's important to note that the false teachers that John has been dealing with in his epistle they were arguing that how you live didn't really matter. That because Jesus paid for sins, we can now live however we want. We have all kinds of modern equivalents to that argument, right? There's people who say there's no such thing as sin, or that, well, everything's relative. So what's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me, and we can just go our separate ways and live the lives that we want, and what you call sin I don't really believe in anyways, so we're all fine in the end. We're free to live and choose how to live however we want. John teaches us that such teaching couldn't be further from the truth. How we live matters and is evidence of whether we have had the heart change that we all need and can only find in Christ. We've been in this series to get clarity on the gospel and on who Jesus is and where we stand with him. Let's ask for a second, not just in this sermon, but throughout the series. Are we clear on whether there is unrepentant sin in our lives? Are there areas or practices of sin in our life? Can we recognize when we have sinned? 
And when it happens, do we repent? Do we ask God for forgiveness and the person that we've offended as well? Do we care about the sins that we see in our own lives? Do we care about whether or not we practice sin, either in our our words, our, our thoughts, our actions, whatever it might be? We tend to care an awful lot about the sin we see in everybody else's life. Do we care at all about it in our own? John presents us with a hard and challenging contrast here, but we need to hear it. We need to hear it so that we don't continue in the false belief that everyone's a child of God, so everyone's okay. It'll all end up okay for everyone in the end. We need to hear it so that we can hear again of our own need for Jesus and for the heart change that only he can give us. The implication of being a child of God is that it changes how we live, and how we live is the evidence of knowing him. Here's the second implication. Being reborn means we can have hope for the future. Look at chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. In other words, as part of the family of God, we look for the eventual family reunion. We look forward to it with hope. Another repeated word from our passage today, there are a few of them, is appeared or appears. We hear of Christ's work in his first appearing. That's what verses 5 and 8 are all about. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him is no sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what his first coming is all about, dealing with the problem of sin and making it possible for us to become children of God. Verse 28, which we just read, is about Jesus' future appearance. It's about his return. And it gives us two reasons for hope. The first is that we can believe that he is, in fact, coming again. When he appears, John writes, not if, when. We don't know when Christ will return, but we do know that it will happen. We can be as sure of that as that the sun rises each day. We also know that when he comes, it will be a day of judgment. Now, that doesn't sound good a lot of the time. I don't know very many people who look forward to a judgment day. But for those who have been reborn, John tells us, it does not need to be a day of fear. We can have confidence at his appearing, he writes, because we've been made part of his family. And it gets even better than that. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That is a crucial verse for us. John's not sugarcoating anything. What we will be has not yet appeared, he writes. Things are not as they should be. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, to conquer sin, but it is not completely rooted out of the world just yet. And yet, 
there is an unshakable, unchangeable reason for hope. You see, if we are in Christ, we are children of God, and our Father is the giver of good gifts, as we heard about in our gospel reading today. Even though things are not as they should be now, we know that one day they will be exactly what he intends them to be, including us. We will be like him. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now, a lot of Christians seem to have a hard time grasping why it matters that Jesus is coming back. I mean, we get, okay, things will be made new and everything will be perfect, and and that admittedly sounds wonderful. I hope we all want that, but it seems so distant. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with our daily lives. Well, first we need to realize it actually might not be all that distant. Christ could return at any moment, and Christians are called to be ready for that. But I think more to the point for today, the return of Christ matters because it's meant to shape how we experience our daily lives. We all experience difficulty and sin and tragedies, and it can very easily knock us off course, right? We can be in those moments and we think, where where is God in this? What's happening? What are you doing here, Lord? Many of us have experienced, even recently, health issues, family issues, the death of a loved one. It's all kinds of things, right? The return of Christ doesn't mean that we don't experience those things or that we don't experience pain or suffering or loss, but it changes the way we experience them. It reminds us that We actually don't need to be consumed by them. We don't need to be knocked off course by them. We don't need to be consumed by the ongoing moments of our daily lives. But that the Lord is moving all things to his good purpose. It gives us a lens of hope and assurance rather than one of despair. It reminds us that even though things are not as they should be, The child of God has the ultimate reason for hope. Being made a child of God means being reborn from a life of sin to a life of righteousness and being given hope for the future that is meant to shape our daily living. Those are the implications. So now that we've been through all of that, we ask perhaps the most important question today. Beyond today, really. How does one become a child of God? People being people, we often answer this one wrong. Verse 29 says, You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So clearly there's the answer. Just go be better. Go be more righteous. That'll make you a child of God. Just be nicer. Do more good things for people. Practice righteousness, you're a child of God. That's not what's being said there, by the way. (laughs) The action is the outworking of being reborn, not its cause. Chapter 3, verse 1 is helpful to us here. It's that verse that we love so much. See what kind of love 
the Father has given to us. Let's stop there for a second. John's words here are an expression of astonishment. It's like saying, where could this love have possibly come from? It's incomprehensible love. The love of God is something that should blow us away. And it should do it in large part because it was extended to us without us doing a single thing to earn or deserve it. The image of adoption is used throughout scripture. It's a helpful image for us to wrap our heads around here. In his love, God has adopted us as his own children, bestowing on us all the rights and privileges of a natural born child. But just as with a human parent adopting a child, the initiative does not begin with the child. It's not the child's doing that creates the adoption, but the parent's. So it is with being adopted by God. He is the initiator. The rebirth, the adoption that we all need to become a child of God finds its origin in him and him alone. That's why John is so gripped by the love of God. Because while it might be really easy to love those that we think have earned it or deserve it, God extended his love to those who were dead in their trespasses who over and over again have tried to ignore him or remove him from their lives. And he did it through the gracious gift of his son. Through faith in Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. John writes in the first chapter of his gospel, verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now that would be amazing just right there, but he continues writing. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is all God's doing. In response to this, we need to ask ourselves, do we have that relationship? Do we know the love of our Father in Jesus Christ? Have we been adopted by him and are we able to genuinely call ourselves children of God? You see now why we had to make this important distinguishing at the beginning? Between being made in the image of God and being a child of God? Without being made a child of God, we still are separated from him. We might be made in his image, but that does not mean that we are with him for eternity. We need Christ for that. We need to be adopted through faith in Christ. If the answer to these questions is yes, are we willing to then share that love of Christ with those who have not yet been adopted, who remain orphans? Are we open and willing to share with others about the relationship we have with Jesus, about how in his grace and immeasurable love, God has adopted all who believe in Jesus as his very own children? The answer is no to that first question. Are you willing to find out more? Are you willing to... Consider praying and asking Christ to reveal himself to you. To ask, seek, and knock. Again, 
like we heard about in our gospel reading. We all need to be honest about where we stand with Christ. Please know that even if we have made a practice of sinning, until he returns or we have our last breath, that forgiveness is still there for us. Being a child of God is the gift that he offers to us. Through Jesus, God has adopted us as children by faith in him. And in him, there is genuine hope for the days ahead. He will make all things, us and the world, as they were meant to be. And that is a promise we can trust in and look forward to seeing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can rest assured in the promises you've made to us and the promises that you've given us through your son. We pray, Lord, that you would help that hope, that promise to guide us in our daily lives, that we would remember that we are adopted children, that you have made us your own children. Pray, Lord, that you would speak that truth into the lives of all those that remained orphaned from you, that they might know you as their father and receive your love and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.